Well, good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. And I hope that you have had a blessed week this week, and I know you have. All the sights and the sounds that we're hearing today are all about Christmas. The lights, the, the carols that we are singing, the trees, the Christmas trees, everything tells us that Christmas is just around the corner. And in fact, it is only two weeks away. Now, I know, I know this year may be that we, we treat Christmas a little bit differently, that we celebrate it a little bit differently. But that's okay. It's just one year. And the truth is, this could be the year that we make Christmas more about Jesus than we have ever done before. Christmas is about Jesus. Now, I know it's about family also. It's about giving gifts. I understand all of that. But the truth is, Jesus is the reason for the season. It is Jesus that has turned your life around and mine. Your life, since you gave your heart to Jesus Christ, has changed because he has become the power of your life. Jesus, when he came to live inside of you, is the one that gave you purpose and meaning in life. He has helped clean up your life, amen? He's helped clean up your life and my life. He has taught us how to live our life in power. He has taught us how to walk with God. He has taught us that we can have forgiveness and how we can give forgiveness to others. He has taught us how we can build deeper, more meaningful relationships in our life. He has given us courage and encouragement. He has also taught us how we could come to know the God of the universe and how we could grow in our relationship with God. All of that has come because Jesus came down, laid down his glory in heaven, and he came down to this earth, and he took flesh and blood, and he was born as a baby in Bethlehem, and then he became the Savior of the world. It is about Jesus, and we celebrate Jesus and his coming during Christmas. So more than maybe any other time in your life, I hope you will make this Christmas about a birthday party for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Now look, we are going through on Sunday mornings in the month of December a short series simply called The Nativity in which we're looking at the four most impactful the most well-known characters of the nativity. Last week, we took a look at how we can trust like Mary. And this morning, I want to talk to you about how we can have character like Joseph. Next week is going to be about angels and the angel that is related to Christmas. We're going to be talking about angels next Sunday morning. But now look at what Matthew tells us in Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, about this guy we know as Joseph. Take a look at what he teaches us. Now this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Last week, as we were talking about Mary, Luke made a big deal about the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. And now, Matthew is doing exactly the same thing. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. 
But after he had considered this, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because. Circle the word because. You see, the word Jesus, the name Jesus, actually means Savior. The name Jesus means the one who rescues. So the angel is saying to Joseph, you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin shall be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him, and he took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until, circle the word until, he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Now, when this story opens up, here is Joseph, and he is facing a big dilemma. There's not a lot that we know about Joseph, but there are some things that we know about him. We do know that he is a descendant of King David from the Old Testament. And by the way, so was Mary. We know that he was a carpenter because the Bible says that. That word that the Bible uses for carpenter is actually a Greek word that is tekton. T-E-K-T-O-N, tekton. And the word carpenter in the Greek language is a broader word than our word carpenter. Our word carpenter means a person who, who works with wood. But tekton in Greek language in the New Testament time actually meant a person who works with wood and stone. So it's a person who's a carpenter and a mason, and that was Joseph. And by the way, that would have also been Joseph's oldest son, Jesus. Now, one of the problems that the theologians have had for hundreds of years is this little town called Nazareth was so small. How in the world could Joseph have made a living as a carpenter? in such a small town. We do know that they had to have had at least 10 families because they had a synagogue. And to have a synagogue, you have to have at least 10 men. You have to have men who have families that had at least 10 families. But they didn't have much more than that, so they would have probably been, maybe a little town, about 100 in population. So with that size, how in the world could a carpenter have enough business to keep providing for his family. And there was a debate about this for hundreds of years, but there has been a new breakthrough. There, archaeologists have discovered something they did not understand before. Just by sheer coincidence, perhaps, maybe by the leadership of, of, of God, though they didn't know it, archaeologists uncovered a major Roman city whose name was Sephoris, S-E-P-P-H-O-R-I-S, Sephoris. That was such a huge city that it was actually the capital city of all that region and of all things. It was only four miles away from Nazareth. 
Well, the more that archaeology has uncovered that city, it has been demonstrated that the city of Sephora was humongous. It was gigantic. And now all theologians will acknowledge that it more than likely Joseph was a carpenter and mason who had the ability to keep taking care of his family because all he had to do is travel four miles away. He could take orders for all the furniture that he could take orders for, go back to Nazareth, build the furniture, put it on a cart, and he and Jesus would take that furniture all the way back to Sephora's. And all of a sudden, we began to understand a lot more about Jesus. He, he had encountered the Roman culture, the Greek culture, and it really impacted his life. There's something else I want to tell you about Jesus and this town called Nazareth. On the south, oh, I want you to take a look at this map very quickly so you can see the location of Sephora. There's Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, Nazareth, and there is Sephora. Now, on the other side, on the south side of Nazareth, there was this huge, broad valley that was called the Jezreel Valley. It was gigantic. It was enormous. And on the other side of that valley, there was another very large city that dated back all the way to the Old Testament called Megiddo. That town called Megiddo caused the valley to be called by two names, the Jezreel Valley and the Valley of Armageddon. Do you remember Armageddon? It's mentioned by John in the book of Revelation, and the battle of Armageddon that takes place in that very valley will be when the Antichrist gathers his forces to kill all the Jewish people and Jesus comes out of the sky. He comes out of the sky. He does battle with with the Antichrist and destroys all of the armies that are coming against Israel. And then he goes from there to the Mount of Olives right outside of Jerusalem. He touches ground at the Mount of Olives and he begins what is called the millennial, the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And here is Jesus who grows up in a town that overlooks a valley where he comes back to and he destroys all of Satan's colleagues, all of the enemies of God. And I have to think as he would look over, he could see that valley every single day of his life, as he looked over that cliff and he saw the valley if there were times in which he imagined what would come with his return. Joseph was a man who lived in Nazareth. But Joseph was also a man that the Bible calls, in the passage we just read, a righteous man. And it meant a man of character. A man who followed God, who had godly character. He was a man who was humble, he was kind, He was soft-hearted. He was a man that was moral. He was a man that loved God. One more thing about Joseph that we know, and that is Joseph had died before Jesus began his ministry at the age of 30. It means that Joseph would have died when Jesus was maybe a teenager, maybe in his early 20s. 
And I think about those who are listening right now online, maybe from one of our campuses, and maybe you had the same experience. When you were growing up, your mother or father left way too soon. And you experienced the death of a parent and the brokenheartedness that came and the confusion that came, the pain and difficulty that you went through. And I want you to know that Jesus experienced exactly the same thing. Now, Joseph was faced with a terrible dilemma. You see, he was espoused to Mary. Back in that day, it was the parents that actually picked who your spouse was going to be. I know it's crazy, isn't it? But it would be early in your life. You may be an older child, more than likely you would have been, maybe seven, eight, nine years of age, and the set of parents of the person you're going to marry knew your parents, and they got together and said, well, you know, I would love it if my daughter would marry your son. Yeah, I would love my son to marry your daughter. And they shook hands on it, and it was a done deal. Now, before you did marry that person, you got to have a choice, but very few people ever went against what their parents had already arranged. Joseph and Mary had been picked for each other, and they were on the verge of marriage when all of that was threatened by shock. Mary was with child. Well, Joseph knew it wasn't his child. And Mary had explained to Joseph, wait, wait, wait a minute, I, I've been faithful to you. I've been faithful to God. This child has come by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph didn't believe that any more than anybody would believe it today. Oh, yeah, Mary, sure. And Joseph had three choices. First, he could expose Mary publicly. And what that would mean is they had a synagogue there in Nazareth, and it would be on the Sabbath day, and there in the middle of that service, Joseph could stand as one of the men of Israel. He could stand and speak, and he would have stood, and he would have said to everybody, there is Mary, and she was unfaithful to me, and she is now with child out of wedlock. You know what they would have done? They would have taken her to the edge of that cliff and they would have stoned her to death. He could have publicly exposed her. Second of all, he could have privately gotten out of the marriage. He could have said, okay, I'm not going to explain the reason why. I'm just not going to follow through with this marriage, but it wouldn't take very long, and everybody would have understood. You see, back in that day, the espousal period was far deeper than the engagement kind of thing we have today. They were called husband and wife already, and they weren't married. And in order to get out of this espousal, you would have to issue a divorce, even though you had not been formally married. And then... He could have gone on with it and taken the baby for himself and went and married her. He had already decided to do the second option. And that's where we come to verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, 
He had in mind to, to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But after that, he had, after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Joseph, Mary has told you the truth. She is a virgin. Why was this so important? Why was it so important that the Messiah would come born of a virgin? Because in the Bible, it discusses the, the idea of original sin. That we come out of the womb as sinners before we've ever made a decision of our own. All you have to do is be around tiny little babies, and you begin to understand they are all little sinners. They're cute little sinners, but they are all little sinners. And the Bible talks about that that sin nature is passed along by the male, by the men. And women are not surprised at all. But Jesus had no human father. His mother was a virgin. And God was the originator of Jesus, so that no sin nature, so that he could die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. He was sinless, not just by nature, but even by choice. Do I believe in the virgin birth of Christ? Well, of course I do. I think that is a minor thing. What's the big deal? Our God created the universe out of nothing. Our God created the human race out of dust. To be born of a virgin, that's just a minor little miracle compared to all else he has done. The bigger part of the story, though, that I don't want you to miss is this. Both Joseph and Mary had been sexually pure. Both of them. They had honored God with their bodies. They had honored God with their hearts. And I want to challenge you to be the same person, to be sexually pure, to honor God with your bodies, to honor God with your minds, to honor God with flesh, and honor God on the internet. to be men and women and teenagers of a pure heart. Now, as shocking as it was that Mary was with child, though virgin, the greater shock of all came in the next words that the angel said about the, the coming of the Messiah. In Christ, God came to be with us. Matthew 1 verse 21 and 20, 23, she will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had, prophet, had said through the prophet, the virgin shall be with child and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, meaning God with us. What he is describing is, is that there is God the Son 
who gives up his throne of glory, and he takes on a body, flesh and blood, and humbles himself to be born like everyone else is born, and then to become the Savior of the world. This is what John is describing when John says in John chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. How in the world could the Word, who is Jesus, be with God and be God at the same time? The only explanation that we have is what we talk about when we talk about the Trinity, that God, one God, has shown himself in three ways, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He is with God, and at the same time, he is God. He was God in the beginning. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory as the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What is He describing? It's called the incarnation, where God takes on a body and dwells among us. Now, why would He do it? Why was it so important that God take on a body and come to this earth? Why was it so critical? Well, first, because man had developed so many strange concepts about God, and God wanted us to know the truth. It is why we know, we, we know for a fact that not all religions lead to God. These other religions had emerged from the pit of hell itself. Those who say that all religions lead are the same and all lead to God. I have talked with many of the people that have said that, and I've asked them, well, explain to me about Buddhism, and explain to me about Hinduism, and Islam, and other religions, and they don't even know anything about those religions, and yet they make such a declaration. God would have to be schizophrenic for all religions to somehow be the same, because they are vastly different from each other. No, all these religions had emerged, and in order for us to understand the truth, he sent his son to demonstrate what is true about God. Because in the beginning, God demonstrated who he was through the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. But then God spoke to prophets who relayed those words about who God is and what his nature is. But finally, he showed us his son, and his son taught us the truth about who God is. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 1 says, long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. But now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. The son reflects God's own glory, and everything about him represents God exactly. God sent his son so that we would understand what is true from what is false. Second of all, God took on a body so that he could feel what we feel. All the pains and hurts and struggles and temptations, he took on himself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, we have a great high priest who has gone to heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, let us cling to him and never stop trusting him. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he has faced all the same temptations we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, and there we will find mercy, and there we will find grace to help us when we need it. 
God sent his son to this earth to teach us the truth. And he verified that he did by raising Jesus from the dead. You don't resurrect from the dead unless it is God who's making that happen. It was the stamp of God to say, this is the one you should listen to. God sent his son to the earth to feel what we feel, to experience what we experience, to be tempted and always we're tempted, and yet to not give in to one temptation. And third of all, he sent his son to the earth to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He came to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. We could never save ourselves. We could never be good enough. No matter if we understood the truth, no matter if we understood who the true God is, we could never do what was required to meet the expectation that heaven demands. Jesus came to do it for us. He was without sin. And he died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. And he rose again from the grave and offered to us the gift of eternal life. And the Bible says, if by faith, we would commit our heart to Jesus Christ. I have nothing good in me. I have nothing that would allow me into heaven. And I turn to you, Jesus Christ, to be the sole reason why I should get to heaven. I'm not going to heaven because I deserve to go. I'm going to heaven because of Jesus Christ. By receiving Jesus as my Savior and entrusting in nothing else but Jesus Christ. So I'm asking you, those of you who are watching online, those of you in all three of our campuses that are gathering and the fourth campus in Darrington, all of you, I'm asking Have you committed your heart to Jesus Christ? It's not good enough to grow up in church. It's not good enough to to do good deeds and be basically a good person. None of that would get you to heaven. Only one way we can get to heaven is through Jesus Christ and his substitutionary atonement. What does it mean? He substituted himself in the place of us. And died as our substitute on that cross and rose again from the grave. Would you give your heart to him? Would you receive him into your life? God, I trust in Christ alone for my salvation. Those of you who are watching online in a few moments, we're going to break and you're going to hear someone else speak and they're going to direct you to an online Next Step Center and I hope that you'll make that decision and talk to one of our ministers about how you can know Jesus as your Savior too. And on all of our campuses, I want to ask you in just a few moments, go to the the on-campus Next Step Center and talk to one of our ministers about how you can know Jesus as your Savior. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we acknowledge that by ourselves we cannot ever, ever come to know you. But through Jesus Christ, it's why he came. It's why he was named Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Oh God, I pray you would move in hearts today online and on our campuses to give their life to you. And those who have given their life to you but are not living for you to recommit their heart by faith to you 
and move in hearts of those who have been joining us online and joining us on our campuses to make the decision to join this church and become a part of this family of God. Move in hearts, we pray today. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.